0: There's a challenge in front of us. We've been talking, but what does it mean to really follow Christ? What does it mean to know who you are in Christ? We looked a couple of weeks ago at that uh, wonderful story by Max Licato of you are special and saying that that's such a picture and image of the scriptures that say you are a new creation created in Christ Jesus for good works, that the old is past and we no longer consider ourselves by the earthly forms and we don't consider christ in that way and we don't consider one another in that way but we have been radically changed in the presence and through the union with christ therefore now we talked last week of we want to follow christ we want to be a disciple of christ we want to learn uh, and live and be like him and so it's important that we uh, are pushing ourselves in that direction and i'm picking up this week with sort of a final thought on that and here's the question in front of us how far are you willing to go How far are you willing to take this Christ thing? How far are you willing to take this following uh, of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in your life? How far are you willing to go? One pastor wrote these words. He says, today's preacher must argue against the self-serving pragmatism of the day. The gospel does say that through it you find your life. But that first you must lose your life. I must say to people, Christ will work for you only if you are true to him whether he works for you or not you must not come to him because he is fulfilling though he is but because he is true you catch the difference there too often we we present Christ as uh, working quote unquote for us and he does and that coming into a relationship with him is fulfilling and satisfying and it is but that's not the reason we come to him we come to him and we submit ourselves to him and we admit our need of him uh, and we come into a relationship with him because he's true. Because he is who he says that he is. So that is a question for us today. Is Jesus who he says that he is? And if so, what impact does that have on you? There was an article on the front uh, page of CNN.com today. And it basically was asking the question, uh, do Christians, Muslims, and Jews uh, worship the same God? And the conclusion of the scholar there and the conclusion of many scholars today is yes. It all ends and goes to the same place. So therefore, what that does is say, well, uh, there's really no need to be exclusive. There's no need to really be different or radical in the manner in which we follow Jesus. We're all going in the same direction in the same place. Sadly, that's not true. There's incredible differentiation, and it actually does damage to all of the world religions. It doesn't honor any of them with integrity to say they all end up in the same place. None of them believe that. And so we're coming, and we're saying, in light of the uniqueness of who God is, in light of the uniqueness of what it means to follow him, how far are we willing to go? And I've picked one of the most popular passages in Scripture. I'm sure you have most of it uh, memorized, and you've probably already got it thumb mark. You've got it bent down, I'm sure. It's Ezra chapter 10. Some of you are going, who? It's Old Testament. That's the left side of your Bible that doesn't have any oil marks uh, from your thumbs. The right side has all the oil marks, because we're New Testament folks. But you've gotten to know me a little bit over the last year, so I love the Old Testament a lot. And there's things that we can learn in the Old Testament. And we're going to go to Ezra, and we're going to look at this chapter in Ezra, and really ask the question. Are we willing to go this far as well? Or were these people just nuts? Were they those kind of uh, wild Christians who were too far down the road? We want enough Jesus to get into heaven, but we sure don't want that much to really alter and change us to make us uh, really fight battles that we're not ready to fight. Uh, It's not printed uh, in your bulletin uh, this week. Hopefully you have your Bibles and uh, you can flip there. There's some Bibles on the back table you can grab if you need to. But let me give a little backstory first on Ezra. Israel had been in captivity in Babylon. The cream of the crop had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar and sent all over and many of them taken to Babylon. The walls of Jerusalem had been destroyed. The temple had been destroyed. And now over the course of time, the people of Israel were regathering and going back to Jerusalem to reestablish the kingdom that God had given to them. They were building the walls, they were rebuilding the temple, and Ezra was going back with the king's permission to go back and to help reestablish Israel, to reestablish the proper and fundamental orthodox manner in which they worshipped Yahweh, that is, the God of Israel, our God. And so Ezra was a priest, he was a scribe, he was an incredibly learned man, he was an incredibly devout and pious man in the good sense of those words. And Ezra, as he was leading the people back, realized something. If we're going to do this if we're going to establish the worship of the one true God in the world, we need to do it properly. We need to do it in a way that reflects who he is, that follows the manner in which he prescribed uh, to worship him and to live our lives in accordance with those things. And what he realized very, very quickly was that the people that he was going to be with and the people he was leading were a long way off. That there needed to be some very, Radical changes within the manner in which they approached God. They had sort of lost their way. They still had Yahweh around, but he wasn't central. And they had him in their mix, but he wasn't the one who was really leading the day. And so I want you to have that in your mind as we come now and we pick up. And the issue that's facing the people today, or at least in their day, was the issue of intermarriage. And it was a declarative statement by God that says, when you go into the land, uh, the promised land, you will not marry the people who are there, the pagan tribes. Because he said, if you marry, if you give your sons and daughters to marry their sons and daughters, then it's going to, it's going to mess things up. It's going to slowly bleed in to your relationship with me. And it's going to lead you away from me. He said there is a sense in which we are to be distinctively Christian, to live distinctive Christian lives in the midst of distinctively non-Christian culture, but in a way that is so winsome that all of those nations want to come and to be in relationship with us. That's normally part of our problem. We can live a winsome life, but it's not, or we can live a Christian life, but it's not very winsome sometimes. And so now they were wrestling with a huge issue. Hold on just for a second. This isn't a very easy issue either. These were men and women who loved one another. They had children in these marriages. This wasn't something that was entered into lightly or flippantly. This was something that had deep and profound emotional ties. It had anchors that went down into generations. And now here comes this preacher, Ezra. And he said, folks, we've got to do something about this issue. And here's where it begins in chapter 10. It actually began in chapter 9, but we'll pick up in chapter 10. This is God's word. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself to the ground before the temple of God, a very large group of Israelites, men, women, and children alike, gathered around him, and the people wept loudly. Then Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, from the descendants of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the local peoples. Nonetheless, there is still hope for Israel in this regard. Therefore, let us enact a covenant with our God to send away all these women and their offspring in keeping with your counsel, my Lord. And that those who respect the commandments of our God and let it be done according to the law. Get up for this matter concerns you. We are with you. Be strong and act decisively. So Ezra got up and made the leading priests and Levites in all Israel take an oath to carry out this plan. And they all took a solemn oath. Then Ezra got up from in front of the temple of God and went to the room of Jehonam, the son of Eliashib. While he stayed there, he did not eat food or drink water, for he was in mourning over the infidelity of the exiles. A proclamation was circulated throughout Judah and Jerusalem that all the exiles were to be assembled in Jerusalem. Everyone who did not come within three days would thereby forfeit all his property in keeping with the counsel of the officials and the elders. Furthermore, he himself would be excluded from the assembly of the exiles. All the men of Judah and Benjamin were gathered to Jerusalem within the three days. It was in the ninth month, on the twentieth day of that month. And all the people sat in the square of the temple of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the rains. Then Ezra, the the priest, stood up and said, We have behaved in an unfaithful manner by taking foreign wives. This has contributed to the guilt of Israel. Now give praise to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the local residents and from these foreign wives. All the assembly replied in a loud voice, We will do just as you said. However, the people are numerous and it is the rainy season. We are unable to stand here outside Furthermore, this business cannot be resolved in a day or two, for we have sinned greatly in this matter. Let our leaders take steps on behalf of all the assembly. Let all those in our towns who have married foreign women come at an appointed time, and with them the elders of each town and its judges, until the hot anger of our God is turned away. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Quite a complex situation. Man, can you imagine being the young, new pastor stepping into that church? I mean, we had to deal with some stuff here over the last year. But I didn't have to come in and start going, "Uh, you need to get rid of your wife, and you need to get rid of your husband, and you got to say goodbye to your children, and you got to do all of this stuff. Now, before you step back and you start making arguments of what kind of God would do this, who would break up families, like who would do all of these things, there's no explanation, and for sure there's no indictment, that what the people did was wrong. And what the real point of all of this story is, is are you willing to take seriously what it means to follow Christ? And are you willing to seriously deal with the current sin that is encamped in your life? How radically are you willing to go towards that and to make changes in light of who God is? That's really the point here. The people were making incredibly radical statements and doing incredibly radical things. I'm using that word over and over again, and it's not because there's a great book by Platt that's out there called Radical, even though it's a good book and you should read it. But they were being radical. And in today, we like to get rid of the fringes. We, we want to get rid of the outliers. We don't want the things that are on the edge. We sort of want to be in the middle. We're a, a country and a people that's really gotten used to antidepressants antidepressants though useful do this here's what they do in your life antidepressant clips off the tops of your emotions and it clips off the bottoms of your emotions so you don't go too high and you don't go too low you live life right in the middle and that's important and necessary at times medically but it is not that way in the church we've got to experience the fullness of going high and going low and allowing God to take us to places we didn't realize he wanted us to go and this is one of those times So here's the question again. Is Jesus who he says that he is? I've set the stage for you that says the people have come back. They have experienced incredible blessing by God. His presence with them. His provision for them. They've been sent with troops. They've been sent with money. They've been sent back with God's blessing to go back. So that he could give them everything they could have imagined. To have their freedom. They were no longer under the tyranny of Babylon. They were able to return to their home. I moved around a lot, and so it's hard for me to go back to a place that I call home. But there's one place that's like that for me. It was the last home where my parents were before my dad died, because that's the last vivid memory that I have. And when I'm in Charlotte, oftentimes I'll just drive up the road and pause in front of the house. It, It just ministers in a deep way. The emotions come rushing back. Not because there were a lot of memories in that house, but because there's a sense in which it was home. Some of you all know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a place for you that's home, and you go there. Maybe it's here. Maybe it's as you cross over the bridges, and you're coming back over onto the island. You just take a deep exhale. I'm getting that way now. (sighs) I was up towards my old home in Rock Hill, and it was wonderful to be up that way. But there was something about Friday afternoon, driving over the bridges, seeing the dolphin, which still fascinates me, by the way. People go, oh, once you've been here a long time, they won't fascinate you. I hope not. I still think they're incredible. And I looked, and the sun was going down, and it was just a beautiful thing of being home. Well, imagine having been forcibly sent into exile, all uh, of your freedoms taken from you. You were a persecuted people, and now you're heading back home. And the Lord is the one who did that for you. Then He's the one who gave you that. And if you can't understand what that's like, think of it in a spiritual term. You were lost. And the Lord God Almighty said to you, I'm giving you my son Christ, and I'm leading you to your true home. I'm giving you heaven. I'm going to redeem you in this life, but I'm leading you towards heaven, and I'm going to bless you immeasurably in this life with my presence, with all the blessings and benefits that come from being a citizen of my kingdom. I am going to be with you always, even until the end of the earth. I will give you every spiritual blessing that's in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I will be your king, and I will defend you from all of your enemies and all of mine. You are my child. If a mother has a child at her breast could forget it, I could never forget you. I'm intimately connected with you. I am your king. I am your God. I am your savior. I am the one who has given you your very life. Now you're thinking, you're coming back and you're walking with him. How would you want to walk with him? Most likely closely and intimately and going, God, you've done so much for me. We want to follow you. Well, the people sort of started that way. But then they got lost along the way. All of a sudden, the things of culture They were able to rationalize. Any of you guys ever rationalized anything that you knew was a bad idea? A couple of you? Here's a little hint that I'm learning in my life. When I begin a statement to a friend that starts something like this, this may not be the best idea, but (laughs) normally I need that friend to go, but nothing. (laughs) Stop. Or, you know, not sure how this one's going to turn out. But you might want to pause a little bit. Well, the people were looking around and going, we know that God has said this, and we know that God's called us to this kind of life, and we know all of these things to be true, but boy, the girls in this neighborhood are pretty. Well, they come, I mean, their parents are nice enough. I, I mean, they're religious in their own way. I mean, they're good folk. What would be wrong with intermarrying a little bit with them? I mean, God wouldn't want us not to be happy, would he? God wants to bless us, and it would be a blessing if my son could marry this girl because her daddy uh, owns all these flocks, and it would be good for him to have that career opportunity. And it would be fun for our children to be involved in these secret societies that they have in their places and institutions so they could go and just be a part of these things. And they could all do these things. And the people slowly took little steps. You know that falling away from God is very, very rarely You turning full face and just running the other way. Turning away from God is usually very subtle little steps away from center. That you know may be a simple compromise, but you compromise a little bit more and it's not as difficult and you compromise a little bit more and it's even less difficult until the scriptures say your conscience has been seared. And by the end of it, the things that you used to know were wrong no longer have any effect on you. And you don't see them as wrong. Actually, you've totally turned and said that they're right. And you can justify them and argue them pretty well. That's what was happening with the people here. They had moved away. They had totally disregarded God's blessing and totally disregarded who he was. They had diminished him to a point where now they had a a very large problem they had intermarried. And like I said, this isn't a simple problem. It's incredibly complex. Let me relate that to today. Some of you are relating with me a little bit. You're going, hey, I get it. I want to follow Jesus and I get what the king has given me and I want to follow him. But over the course of time, I've begun to see myself and I've made these decisions. And I'm not going to be so naive to say, how did I get here? But we know how we got here. I've made small decisions along the way. And now I find myself fully entangled and fully ensnared within lifestyle issues, within addictions, uh, with behavior uh, in my life. And I can no longer say, well, that's just who I am. Because now all of a sudden there's a standard that's laid in front of me, and it's a standard that I'm finding that I've deviated from. And so how am I going to get back? This is a deep and complex issue. So I don't want you at all to think that what we're talking about is light or flippant, and I'm not going to patronize you with little bitty answers. Because what we're talking about is difficult. What we're talking about is a is a sense of saying, regardless of the consequences. I'm going to walk with Christ from this moment on. I'm going to begin at this moment to redirect my decisions and redirect my decision-making processes, and I'm going to come and I'm going to try as much as I can by the power of God who dwells in me, by His Spirit which gives me the strength, I'm going to walk in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it touches on deeply held things. Some of you are from the South, and there's deeply held Southern things that we need to deal with. Issues of race and issues of, uh, I still, I drive on 426 coming off of Exit 28. And and there's this huge billboard if you come that way from the interstate. And it's a big rebel flag and it says, never forget. And you know, I'm born in Columbia. I'm Southern, guys. I get it. My daddy's from Birmingham. Forget what? There's things within the Southern church. I used to be a part of a church that used to celebrate Confederate Sunday. This church also never sang the Battle Hymn of the Republic because that's what Sherman sang when he marched through the South and he burned the cities of the South. Folks, that has no place within our churches. You who are from above the Mason-Dixon line, don't think of yourselves and pat you on the back too much. There's issues that we have to deal with regardless of where we're from. And so we come together and we're saying, I'm willing to deal with massive things. I was in a group of men recently and I brought up the issue of racism. Oh, boy, that got to be an interesting conversation. Bill, how dare you say that we're racist? Hey, I'm saying I'm racist. I've got deeply held things, and I've got to deal with them, and I've got to allow the power of the Spirit to deal with these things and root them out of my own life, and we all should be in that sense of, of wrestling with these deep things uh, in our lives. That's what the situation's like here, that we are looking at sin, which is anything that's contrary to the will of God, and it's driven by an overwhelming self-centeredness within us. The root of your problem is you. Do you know that? It's not the person you're married to. It's not the people that you, that you gave birth to. Uh, it's not the parents who birthed you. Uh, it's none of that. It's not the school you go to. It's not the other slow drivers on the island. Uh, it's none of that. You know when you get into one of the roundabouts, that's an opportunity for sanctification, And instead of going, who are these ridiculous people? Go, God, thank you for putting this person in front of me because you exposed something about my heart. Yeah, let's see if you do that today. No, after you. Please, from Ohio, we recognize that you don't know anything about roundabouts and we want to serve you on our island. Oh, you're sitting there seething. Here it is going, who are these people on our island? Well, they're the people who drive our economy, but besides that. <laughs> but we just get into these things and we need to recognize and wrestle with this stuff. And it comes from deeply held self-righteous and self-centeredness. We want what we want, when we want it, how we want it. Thank you very much, God. And we'd sure like you to bless us when we go down that path. One pastor put it this way it's not so much your, your uh, abominable sins that you should repent of, but your damnable works of righteousness. Do you get what he's saying? He's saying that a Christian shouldn't just repent uh, of their sins, of this, this, and this thing, you know, doing all this stuff over here. They should also repent of their righteousness, of thinking that it's our self-righteousness. It's your being here in this church. I was with a group from the Christian Academy, the upper school, And in talking to some of the, uh, this week at a retreat, and talking to some of the teachers, I asked them, ask the students the EE questions. And I'm not going to go into where those are, but it's basically one of them is this. If you were to die tonight and you stood before God and tried to get into heaven and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you respond? And the teachers came back with such saddened looks in their faces. And the responses that they got were, I'm a good person. I go to church. I go to the Christian academy. My parents go to church. My uncle was a pastor. You know, it was all of this. And what God's calling us to is this radical sense of saying, it's not about us. We've got to repent of all of this stuff and get on board and come and deal with him. And so the people here were having uh, to come and make radical decisions. They were having to give a radical response to the sin that was deeply entrenched in their life. And you know what their decision was? And it wasn't taken in too lightly. We've got to send our wives and our children away. There is no person who, would, who at all has experienced the beauty and the glory of who God is who would do that with joy and glee. It would have been a national day of mourning in that country. It would have been an opportunity for there to be deep weeping. And I'm not saying that that's what God is calling us to. If you've married as someone who's not a believer, I'm not saying, hey, walk away from them today. This isn't normative. This is extraordinary right here where God is trying to make a point. If you have cancer in your life, how are you going to deal with cancer? I'd like to get rid of about 75% of it, but I'd like to keep 25% just because. I like how it makes me feel. I like being known as a cancer person. I I like these things. No, how do you deal with cancer in your life? You get radical. You try to figure out how it is that you're going to eradicate it from your life. You change your lifestyle. You change your eating habits. You change the manner in which you do things. You are going and willing to do whatever it takes in order to do these things in your life. You don't give up. And God is saying sin is a cancer that has taken up residence within your life. And it leads you to bondage. It's a predator that's trying to kill you. The scriptures say that when God was talking to Cain, he said, Cain, be very careful. In how you deal with your brother. For sin is knocking at your door and its desire is for you. It is crouching and its desire is for you. It wants to destroy you. It doesn't want to just come up and take up a little residence in your life. But it wants to kill you. Some of you read the article about the little boy who was in Florida. And it's just been a couple of weeks ago. And the family python finally acted like a python is supposed to act. And what's a python supposed to do when it finds something that's smaller than itself uh, and is made of flesh? It bites it and it tries to crush the very life out of it. And that's what this python did to the little boy in Florida. He survived. But people were upset with the snake. How is it supposed to act? It acted by its nature. And for many of us, what you have invited into your life are Boa constrictors and pythons. And you're keeping them at bay and you're feeding them just a little bit, but at some point in time they will act by their nature, and their nature is to fully destroy you and to lead you away from God Himself. But Satan is so wily, he is so so wise that he makes sin really pleasant. I wish sin was like this. Bill, sin is going to have to be eating artichokes and artichoke hearts the rest of your life. I would be the most holy person in the world. That would be easy for me. I hate artichokes and I hate artichoke hearts. So if you invite us to dinner, sorry. uh, I will choke one down because my parents raised me that way. But I won't enjoy it. But that's not what he did. He said sin comes wrapped sometimes in a beautiful package. It's sensual in that it touches our senses. It's something that God made good, but because of the effect of the fall on it, the use of it has become evil. Is money by itself evil? No. But the effect of sin on money leading to greed and our desire for it makes it so. Physical intimacy with somebody from, an up, from in your life, is that bad? Of course not. But sin working and the effect of the fall on that, leading to misplaced sexual intimacy, is wrong. And so Satan continues to work in that way. And we find ourselves in this situation of what are we willing to do? First thing in our response when we start to see these things in our lives is a radical or is to be appalled. Is to be appalled. Are you appalled by the sin that you see in your life? Jerry Bridges wrote a wonderful book, and I'd encourage you to read it sometime. It's called Respectable Sins. We like to bash the big ones, don't we? We get on the big ones, but I've said to you before, I have never in all of my years of ministry, and I was talking to Shelton Sanford, my former pastor uh, and friend, in all of his years of ministry, which trumped mine, he said he's never had anybody come to him and say, Pastor, I am wrestling with pride. In my life. Because that's one of those acceptable sins. And other ones fit into those categories selfishness, gluttony, some of those things. We deal with the big ones. But are you willing to be appalled? When's the last time that it broke your heart when you considered looking inside your own life? For Ezra, it says that he wept that he tore his clothing and he pulled the hair out of his head and that he cried before God because of his own sin, but because of the sin that he saw in the lives of his people. And he was appalled by it. He couldn't believe that it had taken place. He couldn't believe that it was in the church. And that's what we need to do in our own church. Are we appalled by the behavior and the lifestyles and the manner in which those who proclaim to be Christians live within this world? Or do we just say, oh, that's just so-and-so being so-and-so? Well, when was that acceptable? Are we willing to radically say, no... I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be appalled by these things. He said there, and at the evening sacrifice, chapter 9, verse 5, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees. And I spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Do you realize how desperately you need this table? Are your hearts just broken? And do you weep in realizing that the pride that you have, in, in the anger that you carry, uh, in whatever it is, the addiction to pornography that you hold, in the fact that you drink too much and yet laugh it off as social, the, the fact that you hate others and gossip about them and murmur and rumor and do all of those things, that it doesn't break your heart? And this God who says, I can't accept you because of all of that stuff in your life, but I want to so desperately accept you that I'm willing to send my son, who was perfect, and I'm going to send him and I'm going to crush him so that messy, sinful people like you can come and be called my sons and daughters. I don't want us to be a people that walks around like this all the time. I'm just a worm. I'm just terrible, thank God. But that we are a people who look constantly and regularly within our own hearts to remind us of this, oh, I'm desperately lost. And if it wasn't for the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, I would be gone. But praise be to him for his immeasurable goodness to us at the cross, because I need that cross. Here's a little, here's a little truth for you. You don't want to know the best way to avoid Jesus? Jesus. Is to try to avoid sin. Think about that one for a little bit. Because if you try to avoid sin and you're going to do it on your own, then you don't need a savior. But if you're coming and you're living your life and boldly living your life in such a way that says, I'm going to try to live for Christ, but I know I'm going to mess up. And I need this massive Savior in my life with a cross that trumps everything else. Then we come and we're willing to make the radical kind of decisions that these people were willing to make. But here's the problem with us. We don't like messy. We're good old-fashioned Presbyterians, aren't we? Some of you don't know what in the heck that means, and I get it. But here's what Presbyterians are, are people who live by the book, we're people who live in an ordered way. We do certain things in certain ways, and we come and we engage one another in certain ways. But here's the fact, in the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's messy. It's messy. And the lives that are sitting around you are messy lives. Whether you want to admit it or not, the person sitting in your chair is a mess. And you can look to the person next to you and go, you're a mess too. But the only way you can say that is acknowledge your own mess. What would it be like for us to say today, based on what God has done for us, that we're going to live in radical following of Him? We're going to change the dynamics of how we live here. This is what I challenged the upper school uh, at the Christian Academy about. I said, do you realize that if you decide to follow Jesus today in a way that really does let the world see Christ in you, and you live a uniquely Christian life in the midst of a uniquely non-Christian world, that things can happen and things can change if you believe that Jesus really is who he says that he is, would it change the way you live? If he was standing here today, would it change the way that you live? Literally, if Christ somehow came and and incarnated himself again, right here, and we knew that it was him. How would you react? Jesus, I'm going out with the boys this afternoon. We'll drink a couple of extras, but I promise I'll be in church on Sunday. Of course we would. God, Jesus, I appreciate all you did for me, uh, but You know, I just don't want all of that right now. How did Isaiah respond when he saw Christ in his midst? He said, Lord, I'm undone. I'm unraveled in the presence of this God because I know that I'm a sinful person in the midst of a sinful people. And Jesus said, you're doggone right you are. Now stay down there on the ground. Some of you are going, he said that? (laughs) No, of course he didn't say that. He came close to him and he touched him with a coal from the altar and he cleansed him. He said, now go, go and proclaim the glories and the excellencies of what you've just seen in the midst of a people who needs to see him. Let me read you a couple of things and we'll end here and come to the table. And recognize too, just as an aside, if you read that Ezra passage, who he started with, he started with the leadership. And so if you're a leader in this church, if you're an ordained leader in this church, or you're a lay leader in the women's ministry or the children's ministry, there's a high standard by which God expects us to live. Because guess what the world is looking? Here's someone one who wrote it this way. Alexander McLaren wrote this. The world takes its notions of God most of all from the people who say they belong to God's family. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. In fact, they see us, they only hear about Jesus Christ. Slightly convicting? Wow. What are they reading about Jesus in your life? In your marriage? In your family? In your driving habits? In all that you do? So are we willing to face the opposition that's going to come? Robert Rayburn wrote these words. There are people in the Christian church, even real Christians, I dare say, who hardly ever fight the good fight of faith. They have no scars to show that they have fought their master's battles. They never slept in their clothes with their swords at their sides. They are strangers to the struggle that other Christians know so well. Ask them how to fight your battles with sinful desires that war against your soul, and they will give you a blank stare in return. They don't know what you are talking about. They do not know what it is to be weary of watching for the Lord, of lifting their eyes to the hills from whence their help comes. The devil has seldom troubled them because they aren't worth the effort. If there is a lack of a battle in your life to live for Christ, you should be concerned. Paul says the flesh and the spirit wrestle against one another and war against one another. So the presence of the battle is a good thing, by the way, folks. And what we want to do is come together as a people of God and come around this table, and come around one another, and encourage one another within the foxhole that we call life of fighting the battles for our God to live lives in such a way that the world, when it reads us, sees Him and comes to give their lives to Him. That's our encouragement. That's our encouragement in these things. So you're invited to this table today. Again, I've overused the word. But God didn't know a better way to do it. He could have saved mankind, I imagine, in a different way. But he said, no. I'm going to send my son to live perfectly among these people. To obey my law perfectly. To be scorned. To be beaten. To be thrashed within an inch of his life. To be crucified on a cross. But more than anything else, He is going to be the object of my wrath so that my people never will have to. And Jesus wrestled with him a little bit in the garden, didn't he? Father, is there any way that this cup could be taken from me? Is there any other route other than this radical frontal assault on sin within the world? Is there any other way for you to destroy your enemy, Satan? Is there any other way for you to do that? And the answer was resoundingly no. And he said, not my will, but yours be done. And he drank that cup for you. He fought against the powers of hell and defeated them for you. And here's what he's calling us to stand up with him. Fight with him. Fight with one another. And let's see God do amazingly more than we ever could have asked or imagined in the midst of this church. Are any of you battling sin in your life right now? You're wrestling to try to follow Jesus Christ. Anybody? Yeah. Any of you guys carry with you scars? Emotionally, physically, spiritually scars in your life from sin that's happened in the past? Less of you, huh? It's interesting. The ones who were fighting the battles should be the exact same ones who were raising their hands uh, there. But here's the deal. Someone once said about the Christian church or the Christian army that it's the only army in the world that shoots its own wounded. If you're fighting a battle, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get wounded and you're going to get injured. There's going to be moments of victory and there's going to be moments of defeat. And here's what we need to be about in this church we should bear our arms and we should show our scars as well and reach down to those who are fallen and help them up instead of standing above them and going, What happened to him? This place would change forever if we began to live that way. Jesus came and He entered into the fray and He won the battle. And He says, now come and follow Me. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the immeasurable gift that You've given to us in Christ Jesus. Would we be willing to live lives that reflect what we say we believe. That Jesus is who he says that he is, that you are seated on your throne, that Christ is coming again one day, that we are his ambassadors within this world, that our lives are to proclaim the excellencies of our God to a watching world so that they would come and they would come and know you in the day of visitation, that we live by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. That we are living stones, a royal priesthood called to you and for you. God, we praise you today and we give you glory in Christ's name. Amen.